Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Joshua chapter 13. That's the sixth book of the Bible, if you're not sure where it's at. Genesis, and then five more will put you in Joshua. Joshua chapter 13. As you're turning there, uh, some of you may know the story of Robinson Crusoe. You may have heard of it. It's based on a true story, but it's uh, only based on. It's not exactly a true story, but it's a great narrative. It takes place in the 18th century in England, and what you basically have is a young man born into an affluent home who rejects his parents' wisdom and wants to go get rich quick, and he wants a life of adventure and thrill. His parents advise him to stay and be devoted to their family and take the slow and steady route, work hard, etc. But Robinson rejects their wisdom and he goes on these sea voyages and he ends up all over the place. From starts in England, he's shipwrecked a couple of times, he ends up in Brazil at one point, he has this uh, large, I think it's a tobacco farm, and then he's captured and then he's back on the ocean again. And if you know the story, the main plot of the story is that he ends up on a deserted island where he remains for 28 years. It's a long time. He's the only person on the island for most of the story. And when he first gets there, he's, you can imagine, really upset. He's stranded. He doesn't know exactly where he is, but he knows enough to know that there's not a whole lot of chance that anybody's going to stumble upon the island. It's totally undeveloped. There's nothing but animals. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die Complete despair. And when he gets there, he begins to wrestle with God's providence in putting him there. And at first he's really angry at God. He's really bitter against God. And it doesn't really fit. He's conflicted in his conscience because he knows, at least in part, that his own sinful decisions are the reason he's on the island. It's his fault. And yet he's still angry at God. He feels that God has been unfaithful to him. He feels that God has done less than good to him, less than fair. God has not been faithful to Robinson. That's what he thinks. And then over time, his mind starts to turn. And he starts to see that he doesn't deserve anything from God, especially given the choices that he's made in the past, of which he begins to become convicted and he begins to think that God doesn't owe him anything. So in the beginning, he's looking at his circumstances and he says, God, you have not been faithful to me. And then over the course of time, he starts to see, no, no, that's actually not true. He's misjudged the situation. He's misjudged God's conduct and God's character. And he begins to see that God has been faithful to him. And he starts to recount all the ways that God has been gracious to him in ways he didn't deserve. Like, for example, he got on the desert island by a shipwreck. No one else survived. Robinson was the only one. He lived there for 28 years. That's remarkable. The way that a person would possibly survive on a deserted island all by yourself for 28 years. Think of food and shelter and, you know, attack from wild beasts and all the rest. And then he begins to say, okay. God, you have been faithful to me way beyond what I deserve. But the circumstances are the same. In scenario A, he's looking at the same circumstances and saying, God is not faithful to me. No difference in the circumstances. God has been so faithful to me. You see the difference? I want to know about you. What do you think? Has God been faithful to you? 
over the span of your life? And how are you making that judgment? How are you deciding? Because we all have our circumstances, and apparently, just like Robinson, circumstances don't tell it all. A lot has to do with what you're expecting God to do. What has God promised? What's God's obligation to you? Has God been faithful to you? Well, I'm going to read our sermon text. I'm not going to read it all. The sermon text today is Joshua 13 through 22. That's 10 chapters. We can't read it all. We're going to flip around a little bit today as we progress through the message. You may want to keep a finger in your Bible. I would advise you on this part to flip with me. So if you're in Joshua chapter 13, I'm going to read a few verses. I'll just guide you as we go. Listen to the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1 from Joshua chapter 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. I'll skip down to verse 6. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, as far as Misrephoth, Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel. Only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Verse 7. Now therefore, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Flip now to chapter 18. Joshua 18. I'll give you just a second where I'll continue reading. Joshua 18, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them, and that they may arise and walk through the land, and write a description of it according to their inheritance. Then they shall return to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. And I'll pause there and skip down to verse 10. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land to the sons of Israel according to their divisions. Flip over to chapter 19 to the very end of the chapter, verse 51. Next chapter, Joshua 19, verse 51. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. And then one more section. Flip two chapters over to Joshua chapter 21 where we'll look at 43 to 45. Joshua 21 Verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their enemies into their hand. Oh, pardon me. Had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. 
not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, that's a sober text to read as we are gathered under your word. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Father, we ask that you would cause the same thing to occur today. This afternoon as we're here, cause your word, cause your promises to be fully realized and effective in the lives of the people in this room. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up and exalted and that he would receive the glory that you are giving to him. You can't be stopped, and we ask it to happen. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, before we dig into our text today, our 10 chapters, we need to just very briefly pause and think about what came before Joshua chapters 1 to 12. The first 12 chapters of Joshua, in short, recount the military victory of Israel over the people of Canaan, who are the inhabitants of the Promised Land. God is sovereignly bringing his people into the land that he's promised, and he's going to give them the land, and Joshua 1 through 12 tell the story of those military victories. So if you can imagine being a Canaanite in the Promised Land, and you're in the Promised Land, and the whole army of Israel is on the other side, that would be the eastern side of the Jordan, Jordan River, and you feel safe because there's this big river, and then all of a sudden, you see the water dried up, and God marches his army straight into your territory. You'd be terrified. Or, similarly, maybe you're inside of Jericho, you see the heavy, thick walls, and you feel secure. And then you see the people march around and around and around, and all the walls fall down. Those stones thudding into the ground, the power of God on display. God is fighting for these people. And then you fast forward, and we heard last week of all the kings who gathered themselves together in coalitions to fight against this one army, Israel. And over and over again, in a way that would be otherwise impossible, humanly speaking, God destroys all the kings. All the military battles go one way. God is fighting for these people. And that's basically where chapter 12 concludes. That's where it leaves us. The military conquest is complete. But they have not yet moved into the land. They've won the wars, but they haven't taken possession. The moms and the dads and the kids haven't taken all the suitcases and all the rest of the stuff and lived in the land. They're not there yet. Moreover, the tribes haven't yet received their inheritances. What do I mean by that? When Israel was to go into the land, it wasn't going to be a free-for-all and they just scatter and live wherever. Instead, what would happen is the whole promised land would be divided into territories and each tribe would get their own territory. It was to happen in an organized, particular kind of fashion as God had designed it. God was going to give an inheritance. He'd already promised to do it to each of the tribes directly. But none of that has happened. No one's moved in. The promised land hasn't been broken up into its sections for the people to take possession. And that's where chapter 12 concludes. And the basic thrust of our 10 chapters, verse 13 to 22, 13 to 22, is when they do exactly that. They move in, they take possession of the land. They divide it into its chunks so that each tribe gets the inheritance that God has given to them. But 
as we'll see, it doesn't exactly go smoothly. That's a big part of the reason it takes 10 chapters to recount what happens. So Joshua 13 through 22. In order to try and get a grip on it, a big chunk of text, a lot of material, we're going to look at it in three parts, or three big mountains, we'll say. The first one will be everything that happens pre-Shiloh. Some things happen in Shiloh. The first mountain is everything that happens before that. That would be chapters 13 through 17. The second mountain would be exactly what happens at Shiloh, only 10 verses. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 10. I read some of that a moment ago. And then the third would be everything that happens after Shiloh. That's chapter 18, verse 11 through chapter 22. So the first mountaintop, everything that happens before Shiloh. Chapters 13 through 17. I read before, when I read the text out loud, that Joshua was old, he was advanced in years, and then maybe you didn't catch it then, but I bet you can now. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. And then God made them that promise concerning the Canaanites who were still there. The military battle, battle was there, but there were people in the land. And God said, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel, only allot it to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. And then again, apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe, half pardon me, of Manasseh. Now, if you have some Bible literacy and you remember the stories, there are not only nine tribes. You say, why is it only nine and a half tribes? And the answer is that Two and a half tribes got their inheritance on the eastern side of the river. That would be Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh. And then the, I guess, I don't know if you call that the fourth or the third and a half. The Levites have no inheritance because the Lord himself is their inheritance. And you do your math and you end up with nine and a half tribes. So chapter 13, the wars are over, the people are to march forward, believing that God's going to keep his promises, and that the Canaanites who are in the land aren't going to be able to stop them from taking possession. They're, they're to move in. They're to take their wives, their kids, everybody, and move into their new homes. But before we go too fast through the text, we need to set up a few themes, some things that we can kind of hang on to as we progress, because they're repeated in the text. The first theme is God's faithfulness. So I mentioned a moment ago, God said, I will drive them out. God's making promises. He tells them, apportion the land. And spoiler alert, God will keep all his promises. He will prove faithful to what he said that he will do. The faithfulness of God in these 10 chapters hangs like a giant banner overshadowing their progression into the land. The faithfulness of God is a major theme. But also there's a second theme, and it's the opposite, and it's the people's faithlessness. Their faithlessness. It comes up over and over again. In our first chapter here, chapter 13, we get our first hint of the faithlessness of the people. It says there, the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Makathites, for Geshur and Makath live among Israel until this day. You say, uh-oh. Because God said, I will drive them out. And that text says, just a few verses later, Israel did not possess them. It's the first of several comments like this. As we progress through, we'll see more than one of these instances where 
the people of Israel are sometimes said to have, they did not drive them out. And then other times, even worse, they could not drive them out. But I thought things were going so well. God's splitting the river. God's causing the walls to come down. God's destroying all the kings. But this is not new. You remember the sin of Achan, the way that he violated the ban. The people of God have been tragically unfaithful throughout the whole narrative. And the same thing is drip, 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 drip through all ten of our chapters today. So we have the cosmic banner of God's faithfulness over the whole narrative. And then you have the litter of God's people's faithlessness sprinkled on the ground all over the promised land. Both those realities coexist in the book of Joshua. And if we're honest, a lot of times those coexist in our own lives, all of us. But the faithlessness of those Israelites isn't the case of every single Israelite in the narrative. In fact, that's our third team. There are our third theme, pardon me, the faithful few. So chapter 14, for example, tells us about Caleb and when Caleb receives his inheritance. You remember that 40 years before, Caleb and Joshua were the two spies who went into the land to spy it out. There were 12. They all come back. Caleb and Joshua are the only two who say, yes, yes, we must go in and take the land as God has said. He can give us the victory. The other 10 say, no, no, they'll kill us. Well, here's Caleb 40 years later. He's back, chapter 14 of Joshua, where we read this. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. He followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Maybe you picked up on the Kenizzite. Caleb's a Kenizzite. What does that mean? He has pagan ancestry, just like Rahab was a Canaanite. Just like Ruth was a Moabite. Here's another one. Caleb, pagan ancestry and yet full of faith in the providence, power, and faithfulness of God. And he followed the Lord God fully. So that's our three themes. The faithfulness of God is the banner. The faithlessness of the people as they litter the land. And then finally, the faithful few, like shining stars against the dark sky. They step forward in faith no matter the circumstances. So ask the question, what happens? Do they move in? Do they take the land? How does the story turn out? Well, in the events of our first mountain, which is chapters 13 through 17, some of them move in, but not all of them. Here's where you want to flip with me in your Bibles. Chapter 14, as I mentioned, is Caleb's inheritance in the promised land. And this is so far so good. He followed the Lord fully. Chapter 15 recounts the territorial inheritance, the chunk of, chunk of land given to the tribe of Judah. And that's all good, right? We're marching forward, except in verse 63 we read, Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So you have the faithfulness of God, and then you have this inability to march forward. Chapter 16 recounts the territory given to Ephraim. That's the other half-tribe of Joseph with Manasseh. And all good again. They're getting a territory on the right side, the promised land side of the Jordan River. That's the western side. All good, except verse 10, another one of those uh-oh lines. Speaking of Ephraim, but they did not drive out the Canaanites, 
who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. And then again, finally, in chapter 17, we have some territory given to Manasseh. Now, that's a little confusing at first because I said before that Manasseh was on the far side, the non-promised land side, which is the eastern side of the Jordan River. But now they're having some land apportioned to them on the western side. Well, that's how it turns out. They end up having some on both. Some have speculated that it's because they're a really large tribe. If you look at the census and numbers, Manasseh was a really large tribe. There are other reasons also, but either way, they end up with their territory split on both sides of the river. And that's what we get in chapter 17. But the main thing to notice about Manasseh is not their size or the unusual nature of their split territory with the river flowing down the middle, but their faithlessness. It's not good. We know for sure that they're faithless. We know that because the narrative tells us it's the worst so far. They complain about some of the land that they were to have received as an inheritance, that the people who live there have iron chariots. They have iron chariots. And we think, oh, chariots, you know, they don't sound that impressive, but this would be the modern-day equivalent of foot soldiers against men in tanks. They have, humanly speaking, no chance of taking the land. Imagine how fast a chariot can, grow, can go. Pardon me. This all takes place on a big, flat plain. You can imagine a chariot is going to have a tremendous example. There's no trees. It's totally flat. The chariots can fly and zoom wherever they want to go, and these poor foot soldiers could easily be surrounded. Well, Manasseh, they see that, and they're faithless. They complain. They say, we can't do it. God has said, I will drive them out. His banner's still flying, but they're dropping their litter. It's just the same thing that's happened over and over again with the history of Israel, Israel with the depravity of the human heart, theirs and ours. It's the same. We can't survive in a desert for 40 years. The inhabitants of Canaan are giants. We can't go in and take it. The people there have iron chariots. It fits. And so we have the contribution of faithless Manasseh. So there's our themes. We have the faithfulness of God. He is giving them the land, despite our second theme, their faithlessness. And then God does give us these faithful few, men like Caleb, and later we'll see Joshua. And it's at this point that we've seen everything that happens before Shiloh. That takes us all the way from chapter 13 through 17. That's our first mountain, complete. Takes us to our second mountaintop, what happens at Shiloh. Maybe you know the name Shiloh. Why have I structured this whole message around what happens at Shiloh? The stuff before, the stuff after, and then right in the middle, the giant towering mountain of Shiloh. Why is it so significant? Look there in verse 1 of chapter 18. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh, and here it is, here's your significance, and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. This is a hugely significant verse. If you have eyes to see, if you understand the progression of Israel's history up to this point, this is huge. You can't overstate it. It's monumental. It's colossal. To try to get our minds around it, let me ask you this question. Why was Israel supposed to take the land in the first place? There, you could answer that in more than one way. It was God's judgment on the Canaanites. He had promised that the iniquity of this Canaanite pagan people would be fulfilled. They were rebelling against God, and God was going to bring judgment. 
But beyond that, for Israel, why is it, and for God, why is it that they were to take possession of the land? Well, way back when God first made the promise to give the land to his people, he did it through the first one, Abraham. Listen to how God talks about it when he talks with Abraham from Genesis 17. He says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. What kind of covenant? To be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see how those things go together? I will be their God. I will give them the land. Those go together. They're two parts of the same goal. They were supposed to get an inheritance so that they would have a place to worship God. In other words, you could say it the other way, put it negatively, if the people had possessed the land and never set up the tent of meeting, the whole thing is a loss. There's no point taking the land without the worship of God established in the land. So when our text tells us that they set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting at Shiloh, the end goal of those promises is finally coming to fruition. The text just kind of breezes through it, right? It says it in one sentence and it just kind of keeps going, but there's some more clues, but it's a huge event. God's people are now set up to worship God in the land that he'd promised them. The tabernacle was there. The tent of meeting was there. The sacrifices could now be slaughtered. The blood would be spilled. The smoke from the altar would rise up into the very nostrils of God. Sin could be propitiated. This is where the priests would approach God on behalf of all the people and offer sacrifices. This is where God would allow a sinful people to approach him because of the blood of a substitute. It was monumental, the fulfillment of what God had been doing for 450 years, now finally come to fruition. And once this happens, once the tent of meeting is set up at Shiloh, everything moves into fast forward. Look there in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 18. There remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? You see that? God has given it to them. The military battles are done. God has promised to be with them and to drive out the Canaanites. It's as good as done. Joshua says, you seven and a half, or seven, pardon me, how long are you going to delay? What's wrong? Step forward. Believe God to do what he said that he would do. It's like a kid dragging their feet on the top of a zip line, not so sure that that cable is going to hold them. They want to jump off, but man, sure is scary. That's what they're doing. They're delaying. They're just sitting there at the top of the tower, not believing that God is strong enough to hold them. But God shows up at the tent of meeting. Now God is in their midst. He's at the helm. And he tells them through Joshua what to do. He tells each tribe to take three men as representatives and they're to go into the land and they're supposed to survey it. 
find out what all is in there, all the towns, all the geographical features, make a complete survey, come back, divide it into seven chunks, put the seven chunks before me, and I will cast lots, Joshua says, I will cast lots for you to see which tribe gets which chunk, which territory. That's the plan. That's what they're going to do. But it's at a particular place, and the text is just at pains, at pains to point something out to you. One of the ways that especially in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, a really, really old document that seems remote to us linguistically and in a literary sense a lot of times, one of the ways that meaning is made, that emphasis is created, is through repetition. There's something repeated in the first 10 verses of Joshua 18. Over and over and over again. It's there in verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, over and over and over. What's the main point? What's the emphasis? The answer is that Joshua is going to cast the lots in a particular location. He's going to be standing at the doorway of the tent of meeting in Shiloh. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. It's going to be right there. And then, if you were to fast forward at the bookend, the very back of this part of the story, when all the land is finally allotted, at the end of chapter 19, don't turn there, just listen. He says, this is the, these are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by Lot, here you go, in Shiloh, before the Lord, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Over and over and over again. And the idea is that the worship of God, the presence of God is central. This is not a secular affair in which they're to divide the land at a city council. God is in charge of the whole thing. God is giving them the land and God is specifying and directing the whole thing. That's why what happens at Shiloh is so significant. Because God is in the midst of their people. Just like Moses said. If you don't go with us, we don't want to go. We won't be any different than any, other, any of the other nations in the land. Well, here we go at Shiloh. Worship is set up. The tabernacle is set up. The sacrifices are going to be put to death on behalf of the people. And God's people can draw near. He will be with them. He will direct them. That's what happened at Shiloh. Well, what happens after this? Our third mountain. Everything that happens after Shiloh. That's mountain number three. This one moves quickly. Buckle your seatbelts. From chapter 1811 through the end of chapter 19, we see in rapid succession the, tri the tribal delineation, the territorial delineation and allotment to Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. That's the rest of them, the seven tribes, really fast. We also see Joshua receive his inheritance, just like before we had Caleb, one of the faithful few, our third theme. Now we have Joshua, one of the faithful few. He was that second spy, right? With, with Caleb in those early days, 40 years earlier. And there's a few more loose ends to tie up. They're not accidental. They're not random. In chapter 20, you can read the list of the cities of refuge that are identified there. God had commanded that in Numbers chapter 25. And there it is, Joshua chapter 20. God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Next chapter, chapter 21, the 48 cities of the Levites. Remember, they have no chunk of land, no, 
big territory. They have 48 cities scattered throughout. All the worship of God was to be permeating the whole land. They have 48 cities, just like God had promised in Numbers chapter 35. God is proving himself faithful to do exactly what he had said he would do 400 years before. 450 years. And then our last chapter is chapter 22. The first nine verses, those tribes that got their inheritance across the river in the east, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they head back. They go back across the river. They had actually been faithful to come across the river and fight with their brothers, as they said that they would do. And then now, having fought the good fight, they're permitted to go back and enter their rest. And then the last half there of chapter 22, there's this incident of the offensive altar. We could preach easy, a whole sermon on it. I'll just give you the brief version. What happens is these tribes going back across the river to the east, they set up this big altar there on the western side in the promised land before they're getting ready to go back across the river. This big altar, and of course, all the other tribes, they get really upset because there's commandments in Deuteronomy about not setting up any other altar. And they've just set up the altar at Shiloh. And it looks to them a lot like there's about to be a rival altar. Long story short, the tribes in the west come over. They're going to wage war. They explain. And the explanation from the eastern tribes is, oh, no, 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 no. It's not for sacrifices. It's as a memorial. We're worried that when we get back over there, over the passage of years, what will happen is all of your sons will say to our sons, y'all are on the wrong side of the river. You don't have any portion with the Lord's worship in Shiloh. And we're putting this big altar here so that when all those years continue to pass by, there will be a marker, a physical representation that says, no, no, all those eastern tribes really do belong to the Lord. They do have a portion, even though they're on the eastern side of the river. The western sides accept the explanation. War is avoided, and the chapter closes. Things are wrapping up. God's faithfulness, that's our first theme, is on display. He's keeping all his promises. The Canaanites stand in his way. He's crushing them. His own people are faithless. He's moving them on anyways. He can't be stopped. He will keep all his promises. He will be faithful. And if you want a summary verse of the whole ten chapters, look there. I already read it at the beginning of our message. But look at chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. You could put this on, your, on a plaque in your kitchen. It's that good. 2143 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So we need to spend a few minutes thinking about application. What does this text mean for us? That's how it happened. Things that happened before Shiloh, the monumental event at Shiloh, and then the allotments that happened after Shiloh. The faithfulness of God pressing the people in just like he said he would. The faithlessness of the people that God overcame. And then those few, like Joshua and Caleb, the faithful few. What do we want to consider? What does this text mean for us? Is this ancient history? Is it trivia? 
It's not. There's a lot for us to consider. There's a lot for us to live on here in this passage. This passage reveals something very significant about the character of God. That first theme, that God is faithful, his faithfulness, that's something about him. It's not something that he just does. That's something about who he is that he can't not be. It's integral. It's part of who he is. It, it's hard to even speak that way. But God is faithful. He doesn't try to be faithful. He doesn't remember to be faithful. He can't not be faithful. God is faithful. Well, what, what is that? And, and what does it mean for us? How do we interact with a God who is faithful? Faithful, pardon me. Or you could ask it another way. To what or to whom is God faithful? Faithful to do what? Well, in our text, we've mainly been talking about his faithfulness to fulfill the promises, as I mentioned, that he made to Abraham and to Abraham's seed concerning the land. I will give you the land. I will be God to you. That's what he's been faithful to. But we've been zooming in. We've, been, we've had our eyes pressed up against the microscope, looking really close at this issue of land and God's promises. But what if we back away from the ocular lens? What if we zoom out? What if we try and get the big picture? What does the faithfulness of God look like then? Let me ask you this question. We'll try and get at it this way. What has God promised you? Has God promised you anything? And if so, what is it? I'm asking you to think about it in your mind. What has God promised you? How can he be faithful to you? To be faithful, there has to be some pre-existing terms and conditions. Well, what's God promised you? What are you hoping and expecting him to do? How can he come through for you? What do you want? What should you want? And I'm asking that question that way because that question is really important. If you get it wrong, you'll evaluate God's faithfulness wrongly. Remember Robinson? Same circumstances. Wrong expectations over here. God is unfaithful. The right expectations over here Oh, God is so faithful to me. And don't you see that today's day and age? You can take two people in our day and age in the exact same circumstances. I work in a hospital. A lot of y'all know that. I see people in really bad circumstances. And I come in and I see some people and they are just ate up with bitterness. They wouldn't say it like this. But they would, I think they would assume God has not been good to them given their lot. I see people in the same or worse lot just overflowing with thankfulness to God for his faithfulness. What are you expecting? This is also how it works, by the way, with the prosperity gospel, right? It's an easy example. We bash on the prosperity gospel preachers a lot. Probably should. It's everywhere. I mentioned I work in a hospital. They're on the TV all the time at the hospital. The man stands there in the slick suit with the big crowd and all the lights. Preaches a really good message. He's a really charismatic speaker. And he tells the people what God is going to do. And he says he'll be faithful to you. And then if he doesn't do it, what happens? Oh, God wasn't faithful to me. Well, the problem is they have the wrong expectations. Maybe you just want to be happy. Maybe you feel unhappy. And you just want to feel better. And you want God to give you happiness. This is, by the way, the way that the current sexual revolution in which we're all living lures people in. It works like this. God wants you to be happy. You can be happy by this way. And because God wants you to be happy, you should do this. 
It's, a, it's an offer of identity and happiness. Maybe you just want to be happy, circumstantially. But what if it turns out that your circumstances are hard? What if you have, as the hymn writer said, mostly frowning providences? Has God been faithful to you when life is really hard? Maybe you want the salvation of your kids. You should want that. You want God to change their hearts, to help them see their sin for what it is. You want their old patterns to be broken. You want a breakthrough for your kids so that they'll turn from sin and trust in Christ and you'll see fruit. I want that for my kids. You should want that. Is that how you determine whether or not God's faithful to you? What if you grow up with a wayward child? Is God faithful to you then? Or maybe you want something else, a spouse. Maybe you want to get married. That's a good desire. What if it takes a long time? Maybe you're praying for a child month after month after month. Maybe you need a better job. Maybe you're trying to buy a house. Maybe you need relief from some suffering, like physical health. God cares about that. But what if your disease is chronic and you go on to your grave with the same chronic illness? Is God faithful to you then? Finances, maybe fractured relationship. What if God doesn't give you any of those things? A good friend to a lot of this congregation went to pastor a church in Virginia recently. And two months ago, his mom was fine, and boom, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and she's dead. They had her memorial today, this afternoon. She didn't get to see her grandkids grow up. She loved them. She lived with them for a long time. They were super close. They didn't get to grow up knowing their grandmother. Was God faithful to her? These are hard questions, right? We all have these things going on in our lives. All of us will face trials like this. So we need to ask these questions. We need to get our mind and our heart right concerning how it is that God's going to be faithful to us. What are we expecting? Or better yet, what has he promised for his people? God hasn't promised health to all of us. He has not promised financial security. He has not promised a web of secure, happy, healthy relationships. We've got to deal honestly with that so that we don't make Robinson's first mistake. Looking at our circumstances, whatever yours are, I got mine, you got yours. Looking at them and saying, where is God? Why is he not showing up? How is this still happening? Is he not answering my prayers? Those things are important to God. They matter a lot to him. There's a reason Jesus wept at the tomb of a dead man. There's a reason his compassions were stirred. There's a reason Ephesians said, says concerning our salvation, but God, because of his great mercy, he already has it. He has this great mercy, this compassion. Those things matter to him, but they don't define his faithfulness. What has God promised us? To what is God faithful We've been considering a passage, 10 chapters, in which God kept all his promises to his people concerning land and worship. You remember Joshua 21, 45? We just read it 
a little bit ago. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Well, what does this mean for us? What are those rock-solid, non-negotiable certainties that God has promised to every single one of his people? What are those promises that God's never defaulted on? What can you bank on? What can't be taken away from you? To what has God attached his own credibility? Where did he sign on the dotted line, made a personal guarantee? I'm going to suggest to you that all the way down at the bottom of this issue of God's faithfulness is that God is faithful to himself. Within himself, God is faithful. I don't know if that sounds like good or bad news to you. It is immensely good news. The only God that exists, exists in Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is faithful to the Son, is faithful to the Spirit, is faithful to the Father, etc. This is where the faithfulness of God is most fundamentally expressed. The Father is faithful to the Son. So I'll give you an example. Psalm chapter 18. This is a psalm where David, the writer of the psalm, has just been delivered from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. It's a long psalm, chapter 18. And at the end of it, David turns and he looks at the big picture. He's been recounting how God delivered him. God is my rock. God is my deliverer. All this. And David, he looks at the big picture. David knows he's the king of Israel. He also knows that that means he's what the Bible would call the Lord's anointed. He also knows that there are promises to David. God's not going to abandon David. God's made these promises to David and his seed or his descendant. There'll be an everlasting throne. God will deliver David from Saul because God will be faithful to his promise to David and to his seed. I don't know if that's confusing to you. What I mean is the Davidic throne would endure forever. If Saul kills David, it can't endure. God had made this promise to David that the throne would go on forever. So the last verse of the psalm, David backs up and he looks at the big picture. He's not just thinking about himself, I don't think. There's no way he's just thinking about himself. If you read the text, here it is. This is what David said. He, the Lord, gives great deliverance to his king. Is that David or is that the seed that's coming later? And shows loving kindness to his anointed. To David and his seed forever. That word anointed, you know, is the word from where we get Messiah. In Hebrew, those sound the same. Messiah, it's also the word Christ that you read in the New Testament. You know that the son of David appeared a thousand years later, Jesus of Nazareth, in the promised land that we've been talking about all morning. The son of David, that's why the genealogies are listed there in Luke and Matthew. He's the son of David. And God will deliver and show loving kindness to who? Who's he going to be faithful to? 
Who is he going to forever give loving kindness? To the son of David, to his seed, to the king, to his anointed, to the Christ, the son of David. What am I saying? I'm saying that God will be faithful to himself fundamentally. The Father will be faithful to the Son, his anointed, his Christ, the Son of David. I'm saying that if you read the Bible from beginning to end, God is doing something through the Son of David. So Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and all the rest are leading somewhere. God's doing something, not only if you zoom in with the microscope, giving the people the land, but if you zoom way out, he's doing something else. The land is part of it, but it flows to a man born in Nazareth. One great purpose, one great plan hatched in eternity past, a mystery always known to be revealed at the right time. God's always been faithful to his son, Not a single word that the Father has spoken to the Son will default. You might think, well, what has he promised him? What do you mean? How is the Father being faithful to the Son? What has God promised to him? The Father has promised to give his Son a bride. He's promised to give him a redeemed people as his very own. He's promised to give the Son all the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2. The Father even invites the Son. Son, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. That's Psalm 2. The Father also promised that when the Son hung on the cross, bearing our sins, his blood was poured out, and when he embraced death, that that would not be the end. So that Jesus, through the psalmist, could say in Psalm 16, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Can you see Jesus living under the faithfulness of God? You see him banking on what God said he would do? Even into death, even with sin on his shoulders, God will be faithful to do what he said he was going to do. From all the way back with Adam and the whole history of redemption, Jesus banked on the faithfulness of God. And that is the bedrock on which all of us can receive the faithfulness of God. That's a foundation. That's something that you can hang on to. That's rock solid. The Father will never default on what he said he would do for and give to his son. He will save his people. He will give him a bride. There will be all the nations around the throne on the last day when the son receives forever the praise of all peoples as their savior. Because God is faithful to his son, you can know for sure that God is for you and not against you. Because the father's faithful to the son, he will be faithful to you. He can't be unfaithful. You can know for sure that all your sins are forgiven. The very thing that you're made for, fellowship with God, is a reality because God said he would give you to his son. It's like a car. What good is a car if it doesn't drive? It's made to drive, right? That's what it's for. Things have a purpose. You are meant to know God. God gave you that in Christ, and he gave Christ that in you. 
He gave you as a people to his son. He'll prove himself faithful to you. There's a lot of things that he's promised, a lot of things, a lot of fallout that he's promised to give you in Christ as he's faithful to his son. A lot of things. He's promised to conform you to the image of Christ ongoingly. He's promised that you now have the ability by the spirit who dwells within you, if you're in Christ, to put sin to death. You didn't used to have the ability to do that. You were a slave to sin. What sins are you fighting all the time? Anger, selfishness, pride, unbelief. You do have, by the spirit dwelling in you, the ability to put them to death. The scriptures tell us that we're dead to sin. I'm not talking about easy believism or sinless perfectionism. I'm talking about expecting the spirit of God who dwells in you to help you fight, 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 put to death and win the war against sin. God's promised that to you. He's promised to keep you. John chapter 10. All the sheep that the good shepherd has are in his hand and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Are you worried about defecting on Christ, you're worried about abandoning the faith? What do you do about that? You look to Christ and you say, you promised. No one can snatch me from your hand. I can't keep myself on there. I'd fall off. I'd run away. But you have me. You'll have to keep me. And you said you will. The Father, Jesus said, is greater than all. And no one can snatch out of his hand. He's promised to keep you. Philippians 1, he will perfect the good work that he began in you, you bank on him for that. So if you're anxious about abandoning the faith, look to him to be faithful to his promises. No one can snatch you away. Because the father is faithful to his son, you can know that cancer, diabetes, and foreclosure and unemployment, and wayward children, and broken relationships, and canceled dreams, and even death itself are a form of medicine in the hands of the great physician to help you. I can't resist saying this. My kids are sick right now. They hate liquid medicine. They hate it. And last night, for like 30 minutes, we were trying to persuade one of them to take medicine. And it was just all the emotion, and it was so horrible. It was so hard. Tears, right? And it was going to help them. It was for their good, right? Cancer, diabetes, foreclosure, right? God is using the hard things to form you into the image of Christ. All those things don't end up hurting you. They don't hurt you. Listen to the end of Romans 8. In all these things, in them, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In, he's talking about death, peril, sword, nakedness, famine. In all of them, God is going to do good to you and make you more like Christ. So I'm closing. I'm calling us today and every day, but today to put a flag in the ground, come what may, whether it's iron chariots or Canaanites or inflation or being slandered or getting fired or having a disease, we will bank on the faithfulness of God. He will prove himself in the end faithful to his son. He will. There is no doubt it will be not a single word of all the good words that God spoke fell, not one. That's what's coming. Jesus is going to be there. He will have all his people. 
and he will be faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're faithful. Thank you for that passage in 2 Timothy. You cannot deny yourself. You can't be any other than you are. Thank you that Hebrews says it is impossible for you to lie. Thank you that you're faithful to Christ. Thank you that you're saving your people. Thank you that all the nations will be there. Thank you that a whole bunch of people in this room are going to be there as a part of all the nations, worshiping the Lamb, slain, risen from the dead for endless eternities. We praise you for that. We pray you'd save a whole bunch of more people and you'd use us to get the gospel to them. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.